And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome again to The Sustainability Story. This is Matt Orsog with CFA Institute. And today I have Suzanne Johnson, Senior Advisor at United Nations Global Compact, as well as Head of Sustainability Program for Lloyd's Register Foundation. Hey, Suzanne, good to talk to you. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. Today, it's surprising, we've been doing this for a year, and and so we're going to get to a topic we haven't touched on yet, which I'm a bit surprised by, but we're going to talk about the oceans today. And that's Suzanne's area of ex- expertise. But before we get to that, Suzanne, tell us a little bit about yourself, a couple minutes of uh, how you got here. Well, yeah. I mean, let me start at the beginning. Sure. <laughs> uh, at, least of my, at least of my professional career. I started out working for the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. a long time ago, decades ago. And there I was really really captivated by and and got exposure to the idea that nations in the world could come together to put their head towards towards global problems. And of course, at the time, at least from the U.S. perspective, this was a very contentious period. But uh, the U.N. was it's the best thing we have to a platform that really can tackle some very global issues. And um, I think it's worth continuing to try to use that as a global platform. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing is, after that, I went to work in the private sector. And I worked at a global infrastructure company working on global power, gas, water. And I also worked after that in the financial markets and investing in in global gas, power, and water. And what I saw from that perspective was that it really takes the private sector and it really takes also the financial sector to make things happen. So you can have um, governance and you can have regulation and you can have ideas, but without the private sector, things don't really happen at the scale that they need to. And then, and then most more recently, um, I worked for Lloyd's Register, which is this incredible organization. It's a 300-year-old global engineering infrastructure company. It's it's in 80 countries. It's owned by a foundation. Um, uh, but most of what happened, most of its business takes place in the ocean. So its engineers try to make the shipping industry safer and more efficient. And same with scaling up offshore renewables. But mm-hmm. when we realized that actually most of what we do around the world is in the ocean. We started to think about it in terms of what could we do to help the ocean and, and recognizing that, that we, we had the obligation to be stewards of the ocean, which brings me to where I am now with the United Nations Global Compact. And for those of you who may not be familiar with it, it's effectively what we call the private sector arm of the UN. 
It's chaired by the UN Secretary General. And the idea is that this is a place where the private sector works with the UN institution along with science, research, and finance to help advance the sustainable development goals. So the UN helps them to translate sustainable development goals out into the private sector, and equally the private sector uh, feeds back its findings and its ways to advance back into the UN. I work in particular in the part of the UN Global Compact that deals with the ocean and collaborating with ocean industry to make the ocean more sustainable and also to achieve the sustainable development goals through the lens of the ocean. That's great. That's great. That sets the scene. Mm. And now we come to the part of the program that I fear the most, uh, <laughs> where, where you get to quiz me. So I've, uh, I've kind of set this up. You know, do you have a couple facts, numbers that kind of help frame this discussion that we're going to have over the next you know, half hour or so? And we'll see. Give me, give me the quiz and see, see how well I do. And then we'll get into the broader conversation. Okay. Well, you know, we're talking about the ocean, which is more than 70% of the planet. So it's hard for me. I'm, I'm not decisive enough to talk about one number. So I'm going to okay. give you a multi-part quiz. That's fine. Ready? I can fail a multi-part quiz just as easily as I can fail a one-question quiz. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Let's see what you're about. All right. Okay. Well, the oceans are vital to all life on the planet. Yep. What percentage of oxygen do we breathe comes from the ocean? I think I know this. I think I've seen this in a number of times. And you, you may have to give me a little bit of a range, but I think it's around 70%. Hey, that's good. But it's, it's, it's 50%. Really? And oh, so, I... yeah, it's 50%. Okay. I like it because it just shows that the ocean's a planetary superpower. You know, I mean, beyond the oxygen, which obviously is critical, yeah. it, you know, it feeds 40% of the world's people. It regulates yeah. the climate. It fuels the water cycle that produces fresh rain. Yeah, it's a global superpower. Okay, well, you're doing well so far. In fact, you're. Let's. Keep well, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd say well. Like I knew it was a high number because most people just think, oh, we. People think, oh, we get oxygen from trees, but it's really just as much the you know the plankton in the sea as it is from, you know, the forests of the world. Very much so. It's the it's it's they call the Amazon the lungs of the planet, but it's 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 the ocean as well. That's right. Let's talk about some sad things, like um, maybe some of the devastation that's happened um, within the ocean. Um, okay. Go ahead. Let's think about the ocean in terms of a climate solution. Right. What percentage of man-made greenhouse gas emissions are absorbed by the ocean? I'm tempted to say 50%, but I think it's higher than that. I think it, I'm going to say 65%. 30%. Really? Mm. But. I thought, I flipped them. I thought it was, I thought. You know, trees and land absorb less, but I guess I have it, I had it wrong. Well, this is man-made. So, but if you think about the ocean as uh, having absorbed the planet's warming, so that's ninety percent. Okay, can you go in a little bit more detail of distinguishing between those two? So, whatever the planet produces through natural processes, volcanoes over time. That's 90% that's in the ocean. That's but right. From, but man-made, it's, it's only 30%. Okay, okay. It's 30% so far. And this is important because the ocean keeps the planet's temperature balanced and drives the weather. But it, 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 it does have boundaries. And, right. you know, 
we can keep loading it up, but we're going to see a warmer ocean. And we need to start thinking about that in terms of it's driving stronger storms, it's bleaching coral reefs, the ocean's becoming more acidic, and that threatens the life of the crustaceans, which are kind of a bedrock of the food chain. And so it all starts to spin. So the ocean takes on a lot, but there comes a point where we can't ask it to do anymore, and we need to keep that in mind. Right. All right. Are any more questions that I can get horribly wrong? I I think those are one of the main things. Oh, I'll give you another one, which I really like, which is what percentage, you know, as we think about keeping ourselves on the trajectory towards a 1.5 degree scenario, so keeping online Paris plus right. for heat temperature rise, what percentage of GHG reductions need to happen in the ocean to keep us to 1.5? Mm-hmm. I'll say 60%. Well, I, 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 again, I'm sorry. It really does depend on how you splice it. But I, I think okay. if, we, if we look at, in particular, five investments, which we'll talk about later in the, in the ocean, thinking about scaling up offshore wind, uh, shipping, nature-based solutions, and aquaculture, that will give us at least 20% of the way that we need to get to um, to reach Paris Plus. Give us to 1.5. Okay. I misunderstood the question because I was thinking of more carbon absorption than things like offshore wind and things. But that, that makes sense. Okay. That makes sense. So I miserably failed your your quiz. I think you were incredibly <laughs> thoughtful because what it showed is in, in your answers is that you realize that the ocean is a big part of the problem of what we've caused, but also right. a big part of the solution. Now let's we we began we you and I began talking a couple of months ago, and we're actually going to do this uh, podcast I think in uh, early to mid May, and then you said, "Oh, wait, hold on, there's an oceans conference coming up in Lisbon at the end of June," and this is you talking to me back in May. Uh, let me go to the the conference in June, uh, June 2022 is when when we're talking about, and now we're recording this podcast in July. So what can you report? You know, happened at the conference of Lisbon. What should we be excited about? Concerned about? Just give us kind of the, the summary of what happened at the UN Oceans Conference. Well, yeah, you're right. So they just did have the UN Ocean Conference, and that's like, you know, we have the climate COP, which we'll meet in November. But right. this is an ocean COP, so this is where all the countries get together to try to advance ocean sustainability and SDG 14 in this instance, which is helping to preserve and conserve the ocean. And it took place in Lisbon, and it was sponsored by the host countries of Portugal and Kenya. I would call it part of a conversation, really. It wasn't the end of anything, but it really, I think there were a number of things that it started to highlight in a big way. And then the conversations amongst countries, we call states, are going to continue at the climate COP in November, the biodiversity COP in the fall, and then onwards. The first thing is, is we've never seen kind of political momentum to even discuss ocean health. But they, they had the first ocean, they had the last ocean conference in 2017. And that was really where there was a recognition that there was a big problem. But now this is a little bit more focusing on um, starting to create a global commitment towards ocean action. 
so countries came together and they reaffirmed that they, um, the ocean is our future and our responsibility. But in the past years, on the lead, uh, in the past year, on the lead up to the ocean conference, we've seen action that feeds into this. So, for example, there was a global plastics treaty mm -hmm. that was created in March, which is significantly going to contribute towards ocean pollution or contribute towards ocean pollution solution. Last month, or maybe now two months ago, there was a deal cut at the World Trade Organization to curb harmful fishery subsidies. And mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest problems that contribute towards skewing the markets towards overfishing. Um, but also there was a lot of discussion by the states and also by a lot of the parties there, a lot of the organizations there, on how we need to increase financing to help ocean health. So this isn't just about recognizing the problem. This is about really financing it. And there was this there was a recognition that we need to start shifting funds towards the ocean health. One of the biggest things I would say in raising awareness about the problem of the ocean, but also the solution is this recognition that there's the ocean climate nexus. And what we were talking about earlier in our in our numbers is that what happens in the ocean can can help contribute towards climate action. Equally, climate degradation can uh, lead towards a degrading ocean. So there's a symbiotic relationship there. And, and, and this was recognized for the first time at an ocean conference. And then one of the things that I thought was incredibly encouraging was that large presence of the private sector, so of businesses coming together, for example, the biggest ocean industry players called Ocean 100, they were represented there. And, you know, they're really thinking about what they can do to help towards the ocean. So we're seeing the private sector in a way that they never have been involved in the ocean. And one last thing is youth. The youth voice and presence at this conference was strong. So the whole conference kicked off with a youth and innovation forum where the um, Secretary General was, and it's where youth were getting together to come up with creative solution towards ocean challenges. But there was a rep, there was a recognition amongst states, and this was recognized at the final outcomes that all generations and a, a diversity of voices need to come together to try to solve ocean issues. Great. So you mentioned that the, the the previous conference was five years ago, or is this is this now on track where the Oceans Conference is going to be held every year, or is the next one going to be five years from now? It was supposed to be every three years, but COVID got in the way. Okay. So the next okay. one is going to be in France okay. uh, in 2025. Okay. Okay. So we'll, ha we'll have to check back with you then. <laughs> All right. We'll move on to how this podcast focuses mostly on investors. Mm. How should investors think about the ocean and how it impacts their livelihoods, the markets, and how our lives are tied to it? Yeah, well, our lives and our markets are inextricably tied to the ocean. I really appreciated a World Wildlife Fund, WWF report that came out last year that looked at what part of publicly listed companies are exposed and uh, either exposed to, dependent on, or need a healthy ocean? Two-thirds of publicly listed companies depend on a healthy ocean. That's significant. But in that same report, they also talked about the value at risk in global markets right. and the value at risk in the ocean if we continue on 
having unsustainable business and businesses and markets around the ocean. And that's $8.4 trillion in revenues and assets are at risk if we continue on with BAU. So that's big. So, I mean, that in itself, I would say, shows that as investors, we're inextricably linked to the ocean. But also, if you think about like blue economy sector or, or the sustainable ocean economy, you know, these sectors are expected to contribute about $3 trillion a year in revenue by 2030. So that's that's the size of like the seventh largest economy. And that matters in terms of markets. Well, in terms of that $7 trillion in risk, where's that risk coming from? Where What are the biggest risks that people should think about that, and keep their eyes on in the, in, the, in the coming years around the ocean and issues around those risks that they should be focusing on? Yeah. So, you know, you think about climate change. So the storms are getting bigger and already we've seen a, you know, a 64% raise in insurance claims going up for coastal risk regions. That's big. We're seeing degradation of fish stocks, which reduces the pie in terms of the fishing produce and the ability to feed fishing. We're seeing, you know, a reduction in tourism companies as that takes away the, the beauty of the beauty and the enjoyability of why tourists go there. And then there's, you know, of course, storm, the, the mitigation and adaptation, but the, the storm protection by the, the coral reefs and, and yeah. also the, the GHG absorption by things like seagrass and mangroves. Uh, so all of this plays into big areas which will affect markets. Yeah, and all these things, and uh, we talked uh, on a previous podcast, and I think I want to have someone go into more detail on this specific topic in the future, but uh, planetary boundaries of, you know, climate is one, oceans is another, fresh water is another, the the pH of the oceans is one, uh, land use, and so on. And they're all linked. They're all, you know, they're all linked. One impacts the other. And so when people talk about climate change, that gets to land use, that gets to the oceans, and so on. And I think people look at these problems as their own thing, and that, well, we just need to solve climate change, or we just need to do land use better, or we just need to do fisheries better. They're all inextricably linked. And the good news is that you can have solutions. There's a lot of things you need to do, but they're all linked. And if you prove, improve one a little bit, you improve a different system a little bit. So Tackling climate change, for example, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but as we tackle it, you know, hopefully that will help the oceans and bring back a healthy ocean as you make an ocean more healthy, as you allow it to absorb more carbon dioxide, that can help as well. So I think, uh, and again, that's a, I think that's a, I want to have, uh, I think, I think he's based in um, Sweden, uh, Sweden, the gentleman who started the I think it was in 2009, he kind of coined the, the terms of uh, planetary boundaries. But uh, to think of those things is, is inextricably linked, and the oceans is, is just one of those. You're absolutely right. Inextricably linked is the perfect way to say it. And that said, you know, as the global ocean narrative develops, you know, we've, we've looked at the problems and, the, and, the, and the, the, the tragedy going on there, the challenges. We've also looked at the productivity that we need to get from the ocean. 
and that's taking more from the ocean and whether that's, you know, scaling up offshore renewables or making shipping decarbonized or, you know, being able to feed a growing world with a billion more people. We need to take more from it but in a sustainable way. But going back to the only looking at, for example, one thing like climate change, it, it does raise all water as we address that, like the level of the water or raise mm. the boat. I forgot that saying. But yeah. there is a dimension in the narrative that's also about what we call prosperity and the just transition mm. in tackling climate change. So if, if, we, if we are able to make progress towards reducing GHG emissions and address climate change. To what effect is that if it also ignores um, or excludes certain countries from benefiting from or, or certain populations? Shouldn't women, who should be, who should be accessing um, the new blue economy or new green economy jobs? You know, what happens if it, if it hurts labor conditions and what happens if it puts people out of work and people can no longer feed themselves? So, so just addressing one is so important, but thinking of it in a holistic way because they are inextricably linked is, is part of what we call a, a prosperous, just and equitable approach. Well said. You mentioned it uh, a little bit before, but I want to jump a little bit more into what are some of the uh, emerging trends and opportunities in the blue economy, as it's called, the economy of the ocean? And we've, we've talked just, you know, touched on a little bit of those, but some of the big opportunities right now are in either the decarbonization of industry in the ocean, mm -hmm. like shipping. So if you think about shipping, it effectively, the industry burns next to the equivalent of tar. It's very, very dirty, yeah. but it's obviously necessary because 90% of our global trade is transported by ship at one point or another. Right. And it represents right now about 3% of global emissions. That's right. Oh, I, I wish you would quiz me on that because I knew that one. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I read that recently that it's it's about equivalent to uh, you know carbon dioxide emissions from aviation. You know, we think of people flying everywhere, but we don't really think about those products that we buy. They've got to come from China or they've got to come from Brazil or they've got to come from South Africa or things we sell have to go there. There was a story over the summer, early in the summer of, uh, I guess, humorous from maybe some point of view because I, I wasn't insuring the, the boat that sank in the ocean with all the luxury cars on it. But those, how do you think, you know, luxury European cars get over to, you know, the States or to Asia or wherever it, where, wherever it, wherever it is, but that's about 3% of emissions. And the, what is it? Was it called bunker fuel or something? Yep, you know, exactly. That it's it's, it's uh, nasty stuff. But the article I was reading was about how you know efforts to you know to transition to different power sources that are of course green. But you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, oh, no. So you're right. It's about transitioning to these new zero carbon fuels, and that can be around hydrogen and ammonia. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a number of a, a number of fuels um, that will be produced in a number of parts of the world. So, that, so mm -hmm. that's one investment opportunity, for example. Another is scaling up offshore renewables because we, we, we just can't meet our climate targets without taking more renewable energy that happens in the sea that's made in the sea, made in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a great opportunity. Also, you know, shifting in the transition to more sustainable fisheries practices 
either through wild catch or fisheries. There's a number of like the feed, there's a number of sustainable investment opportunities there. But then there's there's also opportunities of industries in the future. And you think about potentially pharma and drugs that and that we may actually get from the ocean or, or components to it. And and um, and and that you know, has has large potential in terms of its um, contribution to humanity. There's underwater sea cables. There's there's all kinds of investment opportunities. And then there's also things, you know, in and around the ocean, around the coasts, and infrastructure as we lay down. I mean, the ocean is going to get busier. We've effectively run out of land. And in order to help meet the needs of a growing world, we need to use the ocean more. In some some ocean areas are expected to get nine times more used by our ocean infrastructure in the next, you know, several decades. And how are we going to manage that? But there's, there's, it just shows that there's a lot of investment opportunity in and around the ocean. So, but we want it to be sustainable opportunity. And you talked about emerging trends in, in ocean investment. And let me just say SDG 14, let's talk about, which is about life underwater. Mm. That's the least funded SDG by of all 17. It's the least funded. And, you know, if you look at closing the gap of what needs to be funded just on the conservation and preservation, one metric has been, you know, we need about $175 billion a year towards these SDG targets. We're getting... Towards all SDG char- targets or just 14? Just 14. Okay. okay. And we're getting a fraction of that. You know, they, they, right. they just put out a study at the Ocean Conference that said we're probably getting, you know, in the five years before the pandemic, we got a total of $10 billion out of 175 But the amount of that that was private sector was nano, very, very little. It, a study before that said it was about 1%. At the point mm. of all this is, is we need a lot more than philanthropic and public money being spent in the ocean. We need to mobilize the private sector too. And the thing is, if you think about markets and you look at what's happened to sustainable investing, it's really grown, obviously, as we all know, in the, in the past mm. 10 years. Think about the growth of green bonds, for example. And, you know, bonds outstanding is now reached, sustainable bonds outstanding is now reached, I, I read, $3 trillion. I don't know if that's what you're saying. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And so investors are, are looking for ways to express their sustainability goals. And I think as they become more aware of what can be done in the ocean and through ocean industry and in the blue economy, they're going to start to look to the ocean as a way to think about their sustainability goals. But the, the thing about you know large investors, at least, is that they need investments of a certain size and return and liquidity. Right. And investment in the ocean, you know, sustainable investment has been relatively small in the past. So one area what we're seeing is emerging is this concept of a blue bond. Similar. Right. I was, yeah, was going to ask. Yeah, similar to a green bond because it's a good way right. to shift funds at scale. Right. And this this basically started before the pandemic, and I think about 2018 or something like that, when Seychelles issued a small blue bond, about 15 billion, to grow its blue economy. I remember that. Yeah. 
But since then, there's been a number of other issuances by island nations. Like, for example, recently the Bahamas issued a $200 million bond towards the blue economy. Or, you know, some blue issuance, corporate blue issuance, like Thai Union, which is a fisheries company, had a sizable issuance. It was first, it was Thailand's first sustainability linked bond. Um, but it had KPIs linked to monitoring fishing schools and the sustainability of them on their boats, as well as some climate targets. We also saw Bank of China issue a very large bond called the Blue Bond. So it, it's growing. But there, are, and, and you know, I'm hopeful that Blue Bonds can have a similar trajectory that Green, green Bonds have over the past 10 years. But there are some things that we can do to build a blue, a vibrant blue market. And again, I'm drawing from green bonds. One is to work with multilateral development banks, because mm-hmm. if you think about it in the green bond market, you know, they were they were seminal in offering support and help de-risking um, you know, some of the first mover kind of cornerstone issuances of the market. That's right. But the amazing thing, and we saw this at the Ocean Conference, is they are prioritizing the blue economy. So at the Global Compact, we wrote a a framework for blue bonds with Inter-American Development Bank, their their private sector arm, IDB Invest, Mm -hmm. kicked off their their blue bond campaign in the region. We are working with Asian Development Bank, which has a blue bond incubator, which is looking at scaling up sovereign issuances and corporate issuances in the region. The IFC, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank, has a blue bond framework, and it has um, been closely involved in supporting a number of blue bond issuances. The World Bank is looking at, you know, blue and finance. So it's it's becoming a priority of multilateral development banks around the world. That is very positive. But another thing that is being done um, to help scale up is, you know, right now it. The blue bond market, a little bit like the green bond market, but it's it's a bit of a wild west because investors, there's not a global point of reference, you know, a global framework that you can turn to confidently and say, aha, this is what a blue bond is. This is this yeah. might be how we um, how we how we can issue one, um, and that that's holding investors back. It's it's creating some investor hesitation. So another thing that happened at the Ocean Conference, you can tell I'm very excited about the Ocean Conference, is that five major global organizations have come together: the UN Global Compact, where I am, UNFPA, which is the environmental arm of the UN, the IFC, the private arm of the World Bank. Asian Development Bank, and then importantly, ICMA, the International Capital Markets Association, have come together to create a focal point for issuing bonds to benefit the blue economy. And why I say ICMA is important to have in this kind of coalition is because 98% of sustainable bonds reference the ICMA principles, the ICMA sustainability mm. principles. So to have them in and Kind of validating and part of this five organization framework is, is is very exciting. The guidance is currently in a consultative phase, so we're going out to other global institutions, um, hopefully building on these five, get their input. And when what when something comes out of this by the end of this year, a final final version, 
we hope that it's going to provide some clarity to the market around what it means to shift funds towards sustainable uses in the in the ocean. That's great. So that that consultation is out now, correct? Or is it about to be out? Yes. It's out now. And where should, if our listeners want to learn about it and possibly comment it, where do they go and when is the, the due date for comments? So the due date is the end of September and it, okay. it's around the time of UN General Assembly week. And they can come to, they can reach out to the UN Global Compact um, if they'd like to find out more about it, if they'd like to be an institutional commenter on it. Okay. And actually to me, Suzanne Johnson at the UN Global Compact is a, is a great point to start at. Right. You'll have to tell me how many people from the podcast annoy you with comments, uh, but, <laughs> but that would be great. That would be great if it was a lot. Well, you've given us some great resources to think about, but before we leave, before we let you go, uh, we always give our listeners a little bit of homework. If they want to learn more about what we talked about, since you know, we're only talking for 30, 40 minutes, anything else that you think they should be reading or listening to or watching to, to dive, no pun intended, to dive deeper into the ocean? Yeah. Well, there was so much that I would love to point our listeners to. But one is something, I wanted to preview something that's coming. It's a movie. Okay. And it's called The Two Kinds of Water. It's going to be out for, you know, public viewing at the at the end of the summer. Okay. It's currently in all kinds of film festivals and is starting to win prizes. And I cannot recommend it highly enough because it takes place in Senegal. It's not long. It's 25 minutes. But it's about what are the challenges faced by fisher people and fisher communities around the world. The cinematography is stunning. It will transport the viewer into the life on the ocean, but help to understand what it's like and how the community depends on it. I wrote down some words, actually, but I thought maybe I could read just Go ahead. trying to describe a little bit of the scene because I was so impacted by it. Well, before, before you do, the, the name of the film again is? It's called Two Kinds of Water. Two Kinds of Water, okay. And it's, and it's not out officially yet. When and where is it coming out at the end of the summer? Is it going to be in theaters or just streaming or, or, or where? Where can people find it? Yes. So it's in the, um, it's, as I mentioned, it's in film festivals around, um, some of the bigger film festivals. Okay. But at the end of August, I believe, you can go to the Lloyd's Register Foundation, www.lrfoundation.org.uk, and you'll be able to watch it and stream it for free. Okay. And I couldn't recommend a better way to spend 25 minutes if you're at all interested in the ocean and uh, the, the communities around that. But it, it, it's something about art transports us and helps us to think about railroad issues in a way that we might not have. Our, our mind expands, at least mine does, and it, it opens up the creativity and, and also the desire to address real life problems. So that's the impact it had on me. But anyway, so these are some words that we wrote down. They're not the script, but it maybe it just gives an opening scene. Or, so if you bear with me. Yeah, go ahead. Imagine that it's early morning in a small fishing town in Senegal. The sandy streets are empty, and the only noise that can be heard is the sound of crashing waves not far away at the beach. As the sun comes up and the streets start to come alive with the bustle of the early risers, making their way down to the rows of painted boats 
that wait patiently along the seashore. You join the crowds, ready to start your first day working at sea. The nerves you feel in your stomach are more than just the first day flutters. You feel the anxious eyes of families who are peering out of their doorways follow you and the rest of the throng down the street. But then a fellow fisher claps an arm around your shoulder and hurries you excitedly further into the crowd heading out to the sea. You shake off your nerves, feeling the warm sense of pride course through you. You're part of something. You're part of a group of the revered individuals on who your village depends for sustenance, for income, and for livelihoods. You board your wooden vessel with two of your cousins, and you receive a warm welcome from the entire crew. The glittering water beckons you out, and you feel calmed by the waves gently lapping up at the edge of the boat. Things are good. As the day progresses, spirits start to dwindle. You have just a few limp fish sliding from side to side of the large container. And a few years ago, several containers would have been brimming with the fish in just a few hours. Boats are having to go out further as the climate has changed and the fish schools have shifted and moved. The crew are watching the water anxiously meanwhile. The captain has his eyes ahead, fixed on a darkening sky, and the storm is brewing. In recent years, the storms have been hitting more often with greater violence than ever before. As you scan around the expanse of the ocean, you see distant boats heading back to shore. It's dangerous to stay out when the weather turns. Looking around the boat, each face has the same expression of stony resolve. It's clear you're going to be staying out there. You're not heading back. You can't. Once something like this would have sparked an argument, but with catches diminishing year after year, you're forced to go out to greater lengths to sustain yourself and your family. I'll stop there. That's great. <laughs> it, makes me, it makes me look forward to the end of August when I can see that. Yeah, thanks. Suzanne, thanks. That was great. I think this is going to be a great resource for our listeners. Thanks a lot for your time. See you soon. Take care. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening today. Mm-hmm.